BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and welcome to Matt Splained. Pretty broad palette uh, for a delve into the weirder side of Matt Splained today. Everything from vintage gaming achievements to AI ethics, healthcare, and space exploration. Or as Matt calls it, tangential normality. And that's a word I always have difficulty saying, and I'm pretty sure he's done that on purpose. Tangential. No, I, I didn't, but I'm I'm going to uh, get you lots of uh, tango when I'm uh, away in the UK and bring it back so that uh, you can drink it, but you can't say it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Anyway, what have you got for us then? Well, you know how we like to keep things uh, sort of topical and current on on Matt's Blend? I mean, that's one mm. of the reasons that the show has kind of hovered a little bit between <laughs> uh, Fridays and Thursdays. It was just to, to bring you that little bit closer to the start of the universe. That's right. Um, so this week, we start with a story from the absolute cutting edge, the bleeding edge of gaming, Tetris. Yes. To be precise, yes. So this is about uh, Willis Gibson. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a 13-year-old competitive Tetris player from Oklahoma, and recently he became the first ever player to beat Tetris. Now, Oh, that's controversial. I know. Well, in a world where, you know, people buy these intricate, beautiful AI-developed and enhanced games that might take years to create, but they complete them in a weekend. So Tetris Mm. is a bit of a standout. It was uh, released in 1985, and it's never been completed. You know, people know it for that that trademark chip music, which is, of course, a version of... Thank you. I was hoping I wouldn't have to do that. Um, (laughs) It's actually a Russian folk song called uh, uh, Korobe Iniki, and you Mm -hmm. thought tangential was hard to pronounce. Um, (laughs) But like I said, up until now, no human player has ever forced the game onto the the kill uh, screen. Uh, Bots and AI has, but it was Hmm. thought to be impossible for uh, human players just because of the the sheer speed that the the game gets to. Uh, Were you a a big sort of Tetris fan growing up? Were. I still am. I love the game. I still play it. Yeah. yeah, so so do I. It's one of those it's one of those games that you never really go away from. And I think mm. part of it is the fact that you can get really good at it, but you never really finish it. There's That's always right. something else to to do with it. Mm. Um now of course, you know, obviously consoles had already come out in the the mid sort of 1980s, but it was still that kind of time of um arcade machines in cafes and bars and you know in and actually video arcades you'd go mm. to a video arcade to play um and the the top score of course would be permanently displayed with the the player's initials usually it was three letters mm-hmm. uh, so that there was this kind of sense of competition you know you were a local hero if it was your name even on the scoreboard let alone at the That's top right. of the, the yeah. scoreboard um and of course, kids. Um, so very often, the top score would be something offensive or vulgar, um, much to the uh, the. Don't anger. know what you mean, mate. Yeah, exactly. Much to the anger of the owner of the cafe or wherever the machine was. I mean, I can remember uh, sort of cafe owners saying. Go on, you can have a free play if you think you can get the high score and get that off the, <laughs> the top of the leaderboard. Um, but anyway, I'm digressing. So 
back to 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 Willis. I mean, did you realize there was I mean, cuz I didn't know, but did you know mm. that there was this competitive uh Tetris scene that there were competitive Tetris players? I, I actually I did. Um I I know I um I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to Tetris. You know, I, I'll be honest. Yeah, I love the game, and I I don't know. If, have you seen the movie that's out on Apple as well? I haven't actually. It's been on my okay. watch list for a while. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes, I, I'm aware that there is a competitive scene, and I'm also aware of how difficult it is and the gestures that you have to do at a certain speed. Anyway, I digress. My turn. Well, no, <laughs> exactly, and it, it kind of um, dovetails back to something that we talked about in last week's episode um which is that idea that the the kind of newer or younger generations are moving away from a lot of the cutting edge technology mm, uh mm. now i mentioned that we do sort of some kind of show in the future uh, about this kind of uh adoption of vintage tech of um analog technology so i'm not going to go into you know these kind of subcultures like retro gaming here um but as you just mentioned about the the gestures willis used this newly developed technique called rolling to to beat the game uh and you probably know more about this than than i do but basically it involves holding the nintendo controller upside down Mm -hmm. so that your fingers are pushing up rather than down on the buttons and you're using your thumb to roll the board around onto your Mm. fingers. So you can get much faster and much more granular control out of those old clunky and not very precise Nintendo controllers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, this is really cool. Like you, you know, Tetris is um, one of my favorite games. I haven't played it too recently, I will admit. Um, and probably unlike you, uh, I am <laughs> terrible at it. Um, now, according to, to what I was reading anyway, some news rep- uh, reader from the UK who was reporting on the story added, well, he should spend more time outside. Uh, okay, Boomer. Yeah. Um, you know, when he's living in his uh, uh Esports millionaire's mansion, and uh, of course, uh, <laughs> she's sitting forgotten and incontinent in a care home uh, with nothing but an aloe vera plant for company. I think uh, she might recall those words. Why, why an aloe vera plant? Well, this show is all about empowerment. It, it, it is, and I, I hadn't noticed. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean empowerment. I meant alternative power. Um, I always get those things confused, you know, being a megalomaniac. Um, no, <laughs> aloe vera plants, uh, because in the future, we may be using aloe vera plants to power um, health tech or personal devices. Now, I know how what? this sounds. I know. It sounds like I've drunk some kind of hippie Kool-Aid. Um, but one of the things that we talk about a lot on the show is about, you know, energy sources. It's about new battery technologies. And one of the reasons that we talk about it is not just because of the need, but because people are always coming up with incredible brain-melting solutions. And in this case, it's actually making supercapacitors made from aloe vera plants. Now, I found this story on New Scientist, of course. This is a a research project from uh, Beijing Institute of Technology. They've blended biology with technology to create uh, a supercapacitor that's been created almost entirely from different parts of an aloe plant. 
just for argument's sake, and um, for a moment, I'm going to pretend that I don't know what a supercapacitor is. Can you explain what a supercapacitor is for people at home who genuinely might not know what a supercapacitor yes. is? Uh, it's a supercapacitor is uh, the bloke in command of a ship. Um, no, it, it, it's like a um, it's like a, a battery in a lot of ways. So it's a device that stores energy, but it's able to discharge that energy much faster than a battery. So a battery mm. typically lets it go in you know, these kind of uh, trickles, which is why your it powers your car. So a supercapacitor can actually give you these quick bursts of energy where they're needed. And it turns out that um, aloe vera plants, and, you know, using our aloe vera plants for alternative uses, that's not new. I mean, we've used the sap in their leaves for lots of purposes. You know, they're used for skin treatments. They're used for health food and health drinks. You mm-hmm. know, aloe vera plants are incredibly versatile um so the team used the outer layer of the aloe leaf they heated it to produce uh activated carbon uh for the electrodes the juice inside the aloe was frozen to to create an aerogel and this is what acted as the supercapacitor's electrolyte and the resulting capacitor which measures an almost imperceptible four millimeters across can then actually be taken and installed inside living plants, including other aloe plants as well. So essentially creating e-plants. Yeah, and that's what they're calling them. I mean, they're calling them electric plants, e-plants, and I love this idea. I mean, imagine carrying an iPhone and an e-plant with you wherever you go. <laughs> you know, at, at, a moment, the, the, at the moment, the, the energy storage is quite low. It's enough for you know, small lights or to charge low power devices like wearables. Mm. Um, but the Beijing team envisions this technology uh, as being, you know, the, the kind of power source that travelers can take when they're going to remote areas. Mm. And, you know, my wife's an avid hiker. I can see the appeal of taking uh, an organic biodegradable power source on a trip. Uh, rather than taking, you know, lithium-ion bat- uh, batteries and plastic and all of these other things that eventually will need to be discarded. So the research team is looking at the scale of the power generation. Um, there are some issues. So making the cell larger to enable it to store more energy would mean making a larger incision into the host plant. So when you do that, you risk uh, infection and damage to that host plant. But what a cool set of possibilities to to kick off 2024 with plant power yeah man plant power yeah man um <laughs> but what happens sorry what happens when ai realizes it can bypass the humans in pods and go straight to plants for power then yeah no matrix straight to the aloe vera for the yeah robot. right um I mean, I think conspiracy nuts will have to introduce a green pill alongside their blue and red ones. Um, no, I, I guess you're talking about the story that came out recently um, that there's a, a roughly 5% chance that AI will destroy humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of versions of this one floating around. This is from, again, New Scientist. Now, this is a survey that was conducted amongst, uh, I think it was 2,700 AI researchers uh, who published work at uh, 56 of the top AI conferences, I think, over the last year or so. And they were asked about their views on um, 
the kind of technological milestones that AI will pass in the future and to kind of look at the societal consequences of those changes. Now, 5%, it doesn't sound like much, but it's it's one of those numbers that kind of gnaws and niggles away at you. you 5% know, is not 0%. Well, 5% is not 0%, but you can also say 5% as 1 in 20 and when you say one in 20, that 5% suddenly sounds a whole lot worse and mm-hmm. a lot more likely. So uh, one of the survey's authors, Katya Grace from the uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute, told new scientists that these results sort of point to a general belief amongst AI researchers that there is a, I love this phrase, non-minuscule risk <laughs> of advanced AI posing a threat to you know, us weaklings in meat suits, humanity. So it's not really about the percentage so much as the perception that there is a perhaps serious risk there. Yeah, I think it's the fact that, like you said, it's not zero. Yeah, um, And I think that's the, the kind of key to this. It's not that it's 5% or 10% or 50%. It's that it's not zero. Uh, yeah. And part of that is down to, you know, this this idea, this perception of uncertainty that surrounds AI technology. Um, what is it? How does it work? How quickly is it going to evolve? Mm. And, you know, we've seen some of that evolution over the last 12 months. And the more it evolves, the less obvious and the more opaque those answers seem to become. Mm. Um you know, the the greater the power, and, you know, when I say power, I don't mean power in human terms, I mean compute power. Um, the greater the power or the ability of the technology, the more sort of perceptually remote it becomes and the more uncertain we feel about it. And as uh, Emil Torres from Case Western Reserve University points out, AI researchers aren't necessarily the best people to go to Uh, for forecasting the future trajectory of AI. You know, they're helping to develop the technology. They're not necessarily the people who are putting it to work in society. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not about worrying unnecessarily, but it is about being prepared and aware. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splain. Welcome back. Um, So far, uh, we've learned more about such topical subjects as uh, Tetris and Matt's estate planning. Um, And if those weren't enough of a trigger, apparently we're going to be talking about pain sensors. Yes, so just to clarify, um, this probably isn't going to go where people are expecting it to go. But to work towards some level of AI developed robots. That from new scientists, society, uh, a new scientist again, and it's linked and to ethical, um, AI rather than having that these process dictated economy. to us by uh, you know we've we've used the AI researchers and the companies before that where from, you know there's a flow of industrial robots and you have to actually regulated the floor down before people can safely walk around. Okay, not mm. because the, I might the machines have any. This. You know, but, um, why don't you or, play or us into the break intent. with um, Precisely the something weird They have weird. no notion Well, uh, I want to go a bit more upbeat, so we'll stick with the subject of uh, extinction. Uh, <laughs> I am, uh, I am yeah. available okay. for yeah. same time, party bookings and motivational speaking, by the way. Um, 
so what robots we can talk actually about, do we spoke about and give them and, uh, much more sense to preserve not digital sense, memories physically um, yeah. give them more in a show like last autonomy. year yeah. and they can perform, I think we also talked um, about more delicate um, tasks the role and they can also adapt to AI can take on elements so they can deviate from those programs and can actually talk to we've also seen sort of complementary technology in to the create form these of, kind of limited uh, creating digital, even video clones that of a mimic person. the sensations now, of touch. Psychologists or even we reported smell. don't seem to be but divided. Those systems have to still being like this. Um, very limited. Mm. But one thing we weren't like those sure hands we saw that um, can pick up eggs. Feel about yeah, so you know, you can program so a robot. This is a story that with precisely uh, the amount science. of force it takes uh, to a recent pick up study an egg. by mm. unless you change Masaki programming all the objects it picked up, it would pick up with the has actually looked into if mm. this the idea previous of, object you know, the, the was a brick attitude and programming isn't changed then most robots it surveyed 222 uh, would then break the egg because the amount and it of force found would be quite wrong. stark differences in opinion now, um, uh, according I, to I like that your examples are either for example 97 percent I, I actually hate eggs and that's not a joke uh, they inappropriate make me nauseous so I think my subconscious was goes to break with the idea Automatically, when well, I see someone eating one, we're okay. Um, but uh, back with to the, the, the subject the of um, motor control in human beings. Yeah, I think that was one of the issues we raised during the previous show. Um, it's also that about, it, the importance you know, the of consent and the idea that there could be multiple copies of a person of after death, uh, as people that a pan of, uh, uh, created their own versions of, for example, uh, that deceased uh, is person. Is the reason that we keep our yeah, fingers out so of this, you know, this so having similar systems digitally would allow them to act with more autonomy and mitigate mm. risks to themselves. Uh, it's not just the about the technical of feasibility, but also them. about respecting so individual end, autonomy. Uh, researchers at uh, it also suggests that this is China, an area where people's ideas are still forming sensing as system for robots. You know, this is, this is basically so a layer of having to come artificial to skin these ideas, external forces that might what be we might be now. For example, this process relies percent of respondents no survey disagreed with the idea that they might be digitally skin that mm. send the electrical which signals is kind to our of brain interesting go, ah, because you've got roughly um, the same the number of people who think it's okay uh, to clone someone else if there's consent. With, uh, a crystal but the idea of it being done to you and when a strong force is a majority of people, it releases electric factor, creating yeah. an, electrical, really interesting uh, an electrical signal, uh, especially given much that like thing our, our nociceptors just a week or two ago, a new Elvis Presley hologram show. Wait, wait, wait. So this means that the robot feels pain so, or at least dead, exactly. a simulation um, of what pain is. Yeah, so they're given a kind of pain present. trigger. It doesn't and physically this cause idea them any of pain, but it's like a digital right. a stop or a it's halt not or a gesture right. going behavior. to be a famous right. message. It's and right. there's right. A, it's increasingly least. going to yes. occupy a, a Well, there's a, a visual a space to everyone's life um, because our bodies don't just tell us if we're in pain. They tell us exactly where And in fact, so to help the robots that uh, have that same ability, clauses the about force digital cloning generates how 
flashes, which are monitored by image a camera. And um, their so this ah. dual approach, this visual component after they die, um, mm. allows the robot. I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to this one because uh, I think you've, you've kind of alluded to uh, it before. But do you really care about how you might be represented after you die? Look, I mean, I mean, I'm, th- I'm there's a, a difference between force and, and harm. You, were, uh, you know right that. I know that. Robots don't know that. You know, once I'm gone, so therefore, how do they differentiate between, say, a gentle uh, caressing like touch should it need to be and something that's actually um, you know, for me, it's always about I'm not going to get living, into you gently uh, caressing robots but anyway who are still there that's are the what you do in your, your personal life is me. So, you know, so um, I think no I mean this is this is where the the AI um, certainly in terms of commercial in. exploitation so, um, you know any proceeds the algorithm from was trained any kind of digital version of me with should go to people that different objects designated to some third party company so this they shouldn't training be able to helps take my the voice AI or image words between commercial and unless I'm you know uh, I guess you can think of it almost like a kind of my machine of version training right. or a version mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm teaching him like you know, the idea of being turned into a afraid dancer me after I die but nine that's the living me talking imagine dead self teaching his machine so have at it aware that a ton of feathers causes my yeah I mean I know I'm laughing but are we gonna head to somewhere happier after the break Trouble. But anyway, if you call um, artificial so pain sensors happier, then really positive. Uh, Wonderful. Um, yeah, folks, we are, of course, uh, going to be taking a short break here on Matt's Blade. We'll be right back after these messages here on BFM 89.9, with a success the rate of about 97.5%, which is hey. probably a lot higher than most human beings, yeah. if we're, you know, being truthful. Yeah. Um, and it means that it, it knows that... Um, has to hold on, you know, very gently. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is uh, Matt Splained. Welcome back. Um, so far, uh, we've learned more about such topical subjects as uh, Tetris and Matt's estate planning. Um, and if those weren't enough of a trigger, apparently we're going to be talking about pain sensors. Yeah, so just to clarify, um, this probably isn't going to go where people are expecting it to go. Uh, this is actually a story about robots from New Scientists, uh, a New Scientist again, and it's linked to um, AI and these ideas of autonomy. Uh, you know, we've we've used the example of smart factories before where, you know, there's a floor of industrial robots and you have to actually shut the floor down before people can safely walk around. Not mm. because the, the machines have any, you know, homicidal or, or bad intent, precisely the opposite. They have no notion of the pain and damage that they can inflict on us because they're just machines carrying out program movements. Yeah. Now, at the same time, advances in AI are hugely increasing what robots can actually do and give them um, much more sense, uh, not sense, but physically give them more individual autonomy. They can perform uh, more delicate tasks and they can also adapt to changing circumstances so they can deviate from those programmed routines. Uh, We've also seen sort of complementary technology in the form of uh, creating sensors uh, for the machines that mimic the sensations of touch or even smell 
those systems have still been um, very limited. Like those hands we saw that um, can pick up eggs. Yeah, so, you know, you can program a robot hand with precisely the amount of force it takes to to pick up an egg. But unless Mm. you changed that programming, all the objects it picked up, it would pick up with the same force that it picked up the egg. Mm. If the previous object was a brick and the programming isn't changed, then most robots uh, would then break the egg because the amount of force would be wrong. Now, um, I, I like that your examples are, are either bricks or eggs. I, I actually hate eggs, and that's not a joke. They make me nauseous. So I think my subconscious goes to brick automatically when I see someone eating one. Um, but back to the the subject of um, motor control, in human beings, it's not just about sensory feedback. It's also about, you know, the proprioception. It's about the sensation of pain and the anticipation of pain. Knowing that a pan of, uh, of oil is hot, for example, uh, is the reason that we keep our fingers out of it. So having similar systems in machines would allow them to act with more autonomy and mitigate risks to themselves and other machines and, of course, people around them. So to that end, uh, researchers at uh, Hunan University in China have developed an artificial pain sensing system for robots. This is basically a layer of artificial skin that can sense external forces that might be harmful. Now, in humans, this process relies on uh, nociceptors. These are the the pain uh, pain sensors in our skin that send the electrical signals to our brain that go, ah! Um, What the Hainan team uh, has done is replicate this with uh, a crystal made of zinc and gallium. And when a strong force is applied, it releases electrons, creating an electrical uh, an electrical signal, much like our, our nociceptors do, and kind of replicating that idea of pain for the computer. Wait, wait, wait. So this means that the robot feels pain, or at least a simulation of what pain is. Yeah, so they're given a kind of pain trigger. It doesn't physically cause them any pain, but it's like a, a stop or a halt or a change right. your behavior message. Right, and right. There's now a, it is at least. Yes. Well, there's a, a visual component too, um, because our bodies don't just tell us that we're in pain. They tell us exactly where that pain is coming from. Mm. So to help the robots uh, have that same ability, the force applied to the crystal generates light flashes which are monitored by a camera um so this Ah. dual approach this visual component um allows the robots to determine uh both the intensity uh of what that sensation would be to a person and the location of the pain look i mean there's a difference between force and, and harm you know that i know that robots don't know that and so therefore how do they differentiate between say a gentle caressing touch should it need to be and something that's actually harmful i'm not going to get into you gently uh, caressing robots but anyway <laughs> that's what you do in your your personal life is you know um no i mean this is this is where the the ai component comes in so um the algorithm was trained um 
with electrical and optical readings from different objects. Um, I think they used a knife, a rod, and a, a cotton ball. So this training helps the AI to distinguish between harmful and non-harmful stimuli. Uh, I guess you could think of it almost like a kind of machine aversion training or aversion therapy, teaching it you know, what are the things that it should be afraid of and what are the things that are benign. Although I imagine teaching a machine to be aware that a ton of feathers will cause as much damage as a ton of lead might have a bit of a trouble. But anyway, <laughs> um, so far the results have been really positive. Uh, a robotic hand equipped with this um, electric skin trained by this algorithm could differentiate between safe and harmful objects with a success rate of about 97.5%, which is hey. probably a lot higher than most human beings yeah. if we're, you know, being truthful. Yeah. Um, and it means that it, it knows that um, it has to hold on, you know, very gently to something soft like your brain, but drop something potentially damaging like a cactus look um regular listeners will, will know that matt introduces unpleasant ideas slowly he's a bit crafty like that you know he mentioned a machine squeezing my brain which leads me to think that there might be uh medical or even surgical uses for this technology bah foiled you spoil all <laughs> my fun um Yes. So if we look at areas like um, microsurgery, um, brain surgery, neuroscience um, already uses uh, a lot of robots as surgery tools because you need tools that can work at a much smaller scale than a human hand with a scalpel can. And a lot of this technology is set up so that it can even work remotely. Uh, obviously, currently the tools are controlled by a human surgeon, but when they're using those tools, there's no feedback mechanism. It relies on the surgeon to guide a machine successfully and accurately, essentially from, from memory, um, you know, remembering what it would feel like to be touching those capillaries or nerve endings or whatever it is, the tissue that they're, they're cutting into. So the researchers have tested the machines doing um, biopsies. They've done test biopsies. And the artificial skin on the bots actually prevented damage to the organs that they did the biopsies on. So it does open up these possibilities for surgical robots, whether they're autonomous or whether they're guided by human surgeons. Um, and it gives more scope for surgeons to to use the machines remotely and still receive that sensory feedback because uh -huh. the machine can actually tell the surgeon you know that that pain receptor is triggered and the surgeon knows that there's a danger of cutting into to tissue that they shouldn't be cutting into and mm. that is potentially an enormous step forward uh, because that would uh, for example uh, allow sort of hard press medical services to meet things like supply and demand by having um, local theatres with this kind of technology installed, but without the surgeons having to actually be there and servicing uh, sort of much larger areas, especially in these kind of specialisations where mm. you might not be doing this kind of surgery every day. Um, you want to stick with sensory organs for the next story. Is, is that right? 
Um, yeah, I mean, you know, while we're on a happy, happy mood, um, <laughs> for for decades it's been suspected that uh, human cells will oscillate at certain frequencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so the again, this is from New Scientist. They use the example of a, a tuning fork. So you bang the tuning fork uh, and it vibrates and emits the hum of whatever frequency it's tuned to. Uh, apologies to anyone under the age of 40 who has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, but believe me, tuning forks exist. Now, obviously, we know that things vibrate different amounts according to the frequency that they're being subjected to. So the classic example is buildings and earthquakes. And there are certain conditions uh, where lesser quakes can actually be more damaging to buildings because the buildings start to oscillate against the quake vibrations rather than with them. So we've seen sort of instances where buildings that are are made with these kind of quake-proof foundations at certain frequencies they start to actually cause more damage to the building because at that mm. frequency, it's vibrating against rather than swaying with the force. Mm. So obviously, at some frequencies, objects vibrate just a tiny bit and they're going to stop really quickly. Um, but at others, which are called resonant frequencies, they move sort of the, these much greater amounts. And determining these resonant frequencies in human cells could be used as a diagnostic tool. Yeah, I mean, that's the supposition. So uh, a team at the Spanish National Research Council has actually figured out some of these resonant frequencies for breast cells. So the researchers created a, a, a tiny cantilever made of gold and silicon, which they used to pick up uh, individual human breast cells from a dish. And because the cantilever was so small, it actually vibrated in response to the cell's own motion, or rather the cell uh, vibrated in response to its own motion. So by illuminating the cantilever with a laser, the researchers could then measure this subtle motion from the way the light was reflected. So they could actually calculate these resonant frequencies. And interestingly, They weren't looking for this initially. The insights leading to this breakthrough came when the team was investigating other aspects of cell behavior. And they noticed when they used these cantilevers that the cells were vibrating because they hadn't actually imagined that human cells would behave like a tuning fork. Uh, As they admit it themselves, if it was something that you'd tried to do the other way around if you'd hypothesized or looked at a tuning fork and said you know what i think human cells behave exactly the way this does <laughs> it would sound far-fetched people would yeah. laugh at you i mean just as you're you're doing now so when they actually observed this it was a complete surprise yeah um well vibration yeah do the cells vibrate at an audible pitch well Obviously, that's the the question, isn't it? Because Ah. it gives new meaning to that idea of listening to your own body. So it turns out that uh, one of the resonant frequencies of the cells fell between 150 and 180 kilohertz, and that's way outside the realm of human hearing. However, they found it also resonated at between 10 and 30 kilohertz, which is 
around where the audible spectrum turns into ultrasound. So obviously we can't hear that, but it's at the very edge of what it's possible to hear. And I guess it means that whales may be able to hear ourselves, um, but obviously we can't. So of course, the question is, what does any of this mean? Yeah, what does any of this mean? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. Um, as you mentioned earlier, it opens uh, the door to diagnostic research. If we can come up with values for a variety of you know, healthy cells around the, the, the body, we can use those resonant frequencies to determine if those cells are healthy or if they've mutated, if they're under attack from something else. Obviously, um, it would be some kind of, you know, targeted sound device, but I get this mental picture of making someone stand on uh, one of those vibrating exercise pads, you know, the, the shops that sell the, the massage chairs. Yeah, getting someone to like stand on one of their, shaking you for a bit and coming up with like a, a full body scan report of the uh, the state of your health. <laughs> Obviously, that's not going to be the case, but um as well as uh, this kind of diagnostic approach, there is also the possibility of using sound waves as a therapeutic tool, uh, using um, you know targeted sound waves to actually t uh, destroy unhealthy cells, and perhaps as an alternative to treatments like chemotherapy or invasive treatments like like surgery. Mm. Um, okay, another quick and weird one then to uh, play us out of the show. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I want to stick with uh, this idea of um, sound waves. So scientists have discovered radio waves in space that demonstrate a diminishing frequency. Uh, and this is something that they've never seen or, or rather heard before. Uh, and they're likening it to um, a sad trombone effect. So everyone knows what that is, right? Uh, can we play that again? No reason for the second one. I mean, it's just a gratuitous <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Uh, so astronomers at the uh, SETI Institute in California observed uh, a fast radio burst uh, called uh, uh, 20220912A uh, over the course oh, yes. of... Yes, over the course of uh, 541 hours of observation with the Allen Telescope Array in California, it consisted of 35 of these waves with this diminishing tone. So it's like each of these waves is part of a, a really, really long, well, 541 hour long sad trombone effect. Is it evidence of like intergalactic vaudeville comedy? If only that was true, that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, it would turn out, you know, that Douglas Adams was a, a biographer rather than a novelist. Uh -huh. um, but the the SETI team seems to think that uh, it's most likely that these sound waves come from magnetars. Now, mm. magnetars are spinning, highly magnetized neutron stars, uh, which are the, the most likely candidate. But um, because they haven't seen anything like this before, they're not sure which subcategory of magnetars could be responsible. 
Thanks for that, man. That was a really good show. Uh, folks, um, if you missed any part of the show, as per usual, don't forget you can find Matt on all of his socials. Just search for Culture Matt. Um, and a few of the names are... What's he got? Let's um, Culture Matt. It'll do. Yeah, you'll, you'll find him. He, he hangs yeah. around all over the place. Or, you know, Culture Matt, Culture Pop. You can find some of his stuff. He does have a Substack newsletter that he pretends that he updates regularly. Oi, enough of that. Uh, Culturepop.substack.com. And yes, um, I, I am chastened with my tail between my legs. Yes. Um, but of course, if you did miss any part of this podcast, you can also find it in alternative places, including our BFM app that is available on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's all the time we have for this week, of course. We'll be back same time, same place next week for Matt Splained on a Friday on BFM 89.9.